Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. like most colonies down here than just ours, obviously. We're walking down a long corridor in the Medical Sciences Building at the University of Toronto. Room after room is filled with hundreds of small cages, and each cage contains two or three lab mice. Our tour guides are scientists Amy Ramsey and Catherine Inson. They're studying mice with mutations in their GRIN1 gene. The same gene where my son Bryson also has a life-altering mutation. Amy takes my wife Laura and I into a cramped room with mouse cages stacked high and deep. Okay, so we're in the mouse room right now. They have little houses that keep them, keep them with this illusion that they're in their own little den. And they use these cotton material to make little nests. In this room, we probably have 20 different strains of mice that have different mutations. The numbers that we want to see are NLX. Those are the, those are the mice. Did you find them? Okay, so they're over there. Catherine opens a cage that contains three mice. Two are what researchers refer to as wild type. Their DNA is typical. The other mouse has a mutation in its GRIN1 gene. There's something surreal about seeing this mouse for the first time. Because even though it's nothing like Bryson, this mouse and my son, they have a similar change in their DNA. And so I feel a weird bond with this tiny creature. So do you see how he has those scabs behind his ears? The mouse has been scratching himself repeatedly behind his ear. It's abnormal behavior. And Catherine points out that it's not totally dissimilar from what she's seen in people with grin mutations. A human may not necessarily do this, but I've noticed that within a lot of your kids, a lot of them have what we call stereotype behaviors, where they do some kind of repetitive behavior, either as like a self-soothing mechanism or, you know, maybe as a consequence of their seizures. It's not really clear to me. But this guy's repetitive behavior is scratching himself behind the ears. He's also jumpier. So see how I touch him and he's a lot jumpier? Whereas if I touch the wild type mouse, you know, like there's not much happening here. He's not bothered by me touching him because he doesn't perceive that as being aggressive. So those two are, no, are wild type. Those two, those two are wild type. And what, what else can you see here just from looking at them? What, what, how, how does that one look differently? He's much shorter. He's much shorter, yep. He's also darker. So, um, so within our mice, the, the change to the NMDA receptor actually changes their color. 
They don't really know why the mouse with the GRIN1 mutation is a different color. But this is important. It's a reminder that those NMDA receptors that are impaired by Bryson's mutation, they're not only in his brain. They're in other parts of his body, too. Most kids with GRIN1 look typical. They don't have the dysmorphic facial features that are common with some rare diseases. But in these mice, the mutation changes the way they look. And just as most people with GRIN1 have low muscle tone, the mutant mice have similar symptoms. If you take a mouse and hold him upside down at the top of his cage, a typical mouse will wrap his little paws around the wires and hold on for dear life. So this is a, a wild-type mouse, and you can see that they like to hang on to these wires. They're reaching for it, and, and I'm, I'm tugging. You know, of course I can pull them off, but I can feel their resistance, okay? And then this is the mutant, and... He can't really, he doesn't yeah, really Yeah, he doesn't, he's not able to hold on as well. Amy's team engineered mice with a GRIN1 mutation and a kind of built-in on-off switch. When the mice grew up, they turned off the mutation. And then they performed a bunch of tests on these so-called rescue mice. What they found is that after the mutation is switched off, these mice become much more like wild-type mice. They put on weight. They become more social. They get better at solving mazes. Over time, even the color of their fur changes back. And their grip, their ability to hang upside down from the bars of their cage, that improves too. And so with the rescue mice, we would see something in between. They, they actually hang on very well. Okay. We did not report that in the, in the paper, but we did the test just, just like this, you know, not with the stopwatch, but it was very clear that that part was rescued, yeah. I'm Keith MacArthur, and this is Unlocking Bryson's Brain, a podcast about my son, his rare disease, and our family's search for a cure. And Amy's research, it changes everything. Because her pioneering work on mice with GRIN1 suggests that even if a cure doesn't come for years, say until Bryson is an adult, it might not be too late. Okay, so do you, do you want me to? Is there more you'd like to? I mean, could I hold one? Is that sure. allowed? Okay, so what you want to do um, yeah. is just grab him by his his tail. Okay. Right there. Yeah. Okay. And then put your other hand in. Don't let go of his tail. Oh, don't let go. Okay. His tail. okay. Yeah, because he'll he'll jump off. Hi, little green one mouse. He's pooping while I got him. <laughs> <laughs> they do that. <laughs> Amy's mice have a generic mutation. She's manipulated them to lower the expression of the GRIN1 gene. But we're talking with other researchers about using CRISPR-Cas9 to create a mouse that has Bryson's exact mutation. This could help us to better understand what's going on in Bryson's brain and potentially use that information to identify a cure. Okay. That seems... Okay, that seems good. 
Um, so I'm just going to try. If you guys can get so, sorry, even closer together, it'll just make. I it don't really like, like him that much. No, I hate this guy. Did you get that on? Yeah. <laughs> Mike Salter is head of research for the Hospital for Sick Children, and Graham Collingridge with the English accent. He's director of the TANS Center for Research in Neurodegenerative Diseases. They're two of the world's leading experts in NMDA receptors, and they're both here in Toronto. NMDA receptors, you might remember, are proteins in our brains related to GRIN1 and six other GRIN genes. I'm here with Laura to talk to Mike and Graham about their plans to make what we've come to refer to as a Bryson mouse. Technically, it's known as a GRIN1 G620R mouse. That number, 620, refers to the fact that it's the 620th amino acid in Bryson's GRIN1 DNA that isn't typical. That's where the glycine, represented by the G, has been replaced with arginine, which is represented by the letter R. Can I ask one of you to um, try to just, I guess in, in layperson's terms, just explain the role of the receptor and why a mutation like the one Bryson has could sort of impact someone? just in, in generally how it could change how they, how they function. Okay, so the NMDA receptor is a protein that is expressed at practically every excitatory synapse in the brain. So the human brain has about 100 billion neurons. Each neuron is connected on average a thousand times to other neurons. So we have something in the order of 100 trillion, sorry, 100 trillion synapses. And nearly all of those synapses have NMDA receptors, so it's very, very important in the brain. You may have heard the saying, cells or neurons that fire together, wire together. It's a tidy summary of the work done 70 years ago by pioneering Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb. Put simply, the more times we do something, the better we are at remembering how to do it. Think of your computer passwords. You'll easily remember the ones you use every day. But the one you only use every few months, that password is much harder to remember. And NMDA receptors, they play a key role in strengthening neurons so you remember your passwords or anything else. So if you activate the NMDA receptor in a certain way, the synapse will get stronger. If you activate the NMDA receptor in a different way, the synapse will get weaker. And that change could last minutes, hours, days, or even lifetimes. That's what's supposed to happen. But for Bryson and others with grin disorders, the brain chemistry is out of whack. And so if there's a change in that receptor, then it will affect, potentially affect the ability of the synapse to undergo this plasticity and hence have impact on the ability to learn and remember in every domain, depending on where the mutation is expressed. So it could affect day-to-day learning and memory mechanisms, the sort of explicit learning that we're consciously aware of, or it could be more um, implicit memories, the memories of motor skills or the ability to sense pain. This mention of pain is interesting. It raises something we've always wondered about with Bryson. And pain is Mike's specialty when it comes to the NMDA receptor. One of the things we always noticed when Bryson was little was that it seemed like when he when he hit his head or something, he didn't seem to react to pain. So it's it's possible that could be tied to the, the variance in, in the gene and the, the receptor, right? 
Yes, it could be. And so I think we, we're starting to see some evidence for that in some of the animal models we work on, where if, particularly if you have lower NMDA receptor function, uh, you, some of the animal models will have less pain. Obviously, our interest is in getting to some kind of cure. And I think you know both of your talks gave us some hope that for a number of different reasons that, that it's possible that there could be something that could change his life quite dramatically. But what do you think that the timing is in terms of if that were possible, how long that might take? That's very hard to answer that. Um, the best hope is that if we see uh, a dramatic change that we a consistent and dramatic change that then we can manipulate in the, in, in the mouse model using an existing uh, available compound. What he means by that is they're going to test a bunch of different drugs on this mouse and see if any have a positive effect. Because if these drugs can rescue a mouse with Bryson's mutation, they may be able to rescue Bryson too. Making a specific mouse using CRISPR-Cas9 technology is usually straightforward, but sometimes it's tricky. Not all mutations take easily, and some make breeding a colony of test mice a challenge. But now that the mouse process is underway, I want to know what other avenues we should pursue to leave no stone unturned in our quest for a cure. Mike mentioned something called induced pluripotent stem cells, or IPS cells. It's a relatively new technology that allows scientists to take human blood or skin cells and convert them into almost any other kind of tissue using that person's DNA. They can even use these cells to create cerebral organoids, miniature human brains that live inside a Petri dish. From a few of Bryson's cells, they could create a mini-brain with his exact DNA. This might provide more clues about what's going on in his brain and give us another avenue for testing potential cures. So, so what would be the next steps then if we wanted to, to try to get those stem cells made? So... So, I mean, we'd have to trying to think of the logistics because all of these done, are done under research protocols. Mm -hmm. So we'd have to set up a research protocol um, to do that, uh, get approval from the research ethics board for that protocol, then um, have that set up in a way that we would... So yeah, it's complicated. There are hurdles to clear and funding to figure out and probably a long wait to get to the front of the queue and actually get these made. But I ignore all this and focus on the fact that they have a colleague who runs a lab making IPS cells. And so, so if, if we want to, I mean, if we want to kind of push to explore as many routes as possible, would we reach out directly? Or is that something more that, you know, depending on where your research goes, you would reach out? Well, I think it's probably easier for us to do it. And um, let's, I think my sense would be, let's see what happens with the, with the mice. So they want me to be patient. But when you have a kid with a rare disease, that's tough. I set aside the idea of getting mini brains made for now and focus on helping Mike and Graham learn as much as they can from the Bryson mouse. Yeah. Is it helpful for you to know sort of the, the details of the, the phenotype of the patients? Like, should we do some kind of survey with them to, to give you 
kind of their their background and whether they have seizures and all those kinds of things? I think that'd be extremely useful for us to have that information, absolutely. Yeah. And we can work out any common areas and areas where there are differences would be very informative. So I've got some homework to do. Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. As more and more patients get diagnosed with grin disorders, the number of people we know with Bryson's precise mutation also grows. From two with Olivia, to three with Owen, all the way up to seven. Unlike Olivia and Owen, the other four are younger than Bryson. Two are in the U.S., June from Virginia and John from New Jersey. And there are two little girls from Europe, Berenice in France, and coincidentally, another Olivia in Spain. The twins have become septuplets. I put together a survey with input from Graham and Mike and asked the seven sets of parents to fill it out. As I get back the completed surveys, I see that these kids have a lot in common with Bryson. Most startle easily or are bothered by loud sounds. All of them have sweet, loving personalities, though several go through periods of -of out-of-control rage. Most have movement disorders involving uncontrolled flapping or beating of arms, legs, and feet. And most parents report that their kids seem to feel less pain than typical kids when they hurt themselves. But it's the differences that intrigue me most. How June is much younger than Bryson, but already has dozens of words. How Owen and Olivia both began walking independently around age five. But none of the other kids can do that yet. Bryson is the oldest of the kids who can't walk, so I start to worry that maybe it's our fault as parents. Have we not done enough to help him? But Laura reminds me how much physiotherapy we've done with Bryson over the years, including sending him to a special school for intensive physiotherapy three days a week over several years. There's also a big difference when it comes to seizures. Bryson has had these seizure-like episodes for most of his life, though they've never been recorded on an EEG. Five of the kids don't seem to have seizures. But the seventh has seizures confirmed by EEG. So why so much difference among seven kids who all have the same mutation? We don't really know. But there are probably at least two factors that contribute to these differences. The first is environmental. Everything from a child's birth experience to what kind of infections they were subjected to as infants to whether their development has been set back by seizures. But the other factor, maybe the bigger one, is the rest of each child's DNA. 
for these kids, walking or talking might be a nearly impossible task. Something like you or me running a four-minute mile or memorizing 60,000 digits of pi. Your healthy DNA plays a big role in whether you can do these things. So why wouldn't it be the same for these kids who share one mutant gene, but have inherited thousands more from their parents? I can't help feeling disappointed that maybe Bryson is a little behind in this cluster of kids with the G620R mutation. Though I'm genuinely so happy for the strides made by these other kids. I've met most of them, and honestly, they're some of my favorite people in the world. And that mouse we're building, it's not just a Bryson mouse, it's also an Owen mouse, a John mouse, a June mouse, a Berenice mouse, and an Olivia mouse twice over. And it's a mouse that could help us find a cure for many more kids yet to be diagnosed with Bryson's condition. Downstairs. It's yeah, Keith. Oh, I'm on my way. Just give me two seconds. Thanks so much. Okay, see you shortly. Bye. Another day, another mouse lab. Today, Laura and I are at the Center for Phenogenomics, the downtown Toronto lab where researchers are using CRISPR Cas9 to make a mouse with Bryson's precise GRIN1 mutation. We're meeting Laurel Nutter, who's the lab's head of science and technology development. Well, it's great that you were able to come. Yeah, I wanted to be here. Excited to see what we can learn. Mm -hmm. Well, we should find out if any of the first generation mice took with the mutation. Wow, fingers crossed, eh? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Good to meet you. Good to meet you. <laughs> and this is my wife, Laura. Hi, nice to meet you, Laurel. So welcome to the Center for Phenogenomics. Just to give you a bit of background, we are a jointly owned research infrastructure. We're here to learn how they make genetically modified mice using CRISPR-Cas9. But the biggest thing we want to know is whether Laurel's team has been successful in making the mouse that Mike and Graham ordered up. We don't have to wait long to get our answer. And then we also do a lot of bespoke models like this GRIN1 mutant model that we made, which we have founders for, by the way. We got the genotyping last week. Um, Sorry, meaning you have the first generation? Yes. Mice? Yep. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> yes, we do. I, I have the sequencing stuff up on my computer. I can show that to you. In her office, Laurel takes us through the process for making a mouse. The way this works, so the normal DNA sequence, so for yours, was a GGG with, so encodes a glycine here, yeah. right? It starts with a careful analysis of the DNA sequence she's trying to modify. And so where this used to encode a glycine, it now encodes an arginine. Which is a much bigger amino acid. Um, so glycine is very small and flexible, and I think it's nonpolar, whereas arginine is charged, and it's bigger, and so it's less flexible. So it probably affects how the protein folds in on itself, because the charges are now interacting, and it's saying, I don't want to be next to you, so get away from me kind of thing. She studies the letters in the DNA around the mutation to find a suitable 20-letter sequence for CRISPR-Cas9 to identify and target. Then she orders this 20-letter sequence from another lab. So we 
engineered a guide RNA or synthesized a guide RNA that was complementary to this site so that it targets the Cas9 here and results in the introduction of a double-strand break. In other words, they use CRISPR-Cas9 technology to cut out the typical sequence of DNA and replace it with one that mirrors Bryson's. The next step is to get this genetic code into an actual mouse. Laurel takes us to the lab where this gets done. Before CRISPR, building a mouse was a slow and costly process. So it would take, you know, on average, one to one and a half years to go from an idea to a mouse on the ground. But with CRISPR, if all goes well, the process can be completed in two or three months. Like moving at light speed. <laughs> they start with a healthy pregnant mouse and remove her embryos. Then inject the DNA mixture into each embryo's nucleus. Or they can place a bunch of embryos inside the DNA mixture and infuse all of them at once with an electric charge. Then they implant the modified embryos into surrogate moms. The process isn't perfect. In Bryson's case, they implanted dozens of modified embryos in the hope that two or three would be viable founders for a colony. It wasn't supposed to be part of the tour, but we asked Laurel if she'll take us to the area where the Bryson mouse is stored. We get in the elevator and go down, four stories underground. Yeah. And is this all mouse food? Yes. Okay. So it's all um, it's all irradiated and sterile. Okay. Because this is a what we call it a specific pathogen-free facility. <laughs> okay. So in here, Laurel asks us to put on lab gowns and takes us through an air shower designed to blow off any particles that might contaminate the mice. And you'll go into this room and. The wind will start blowing, and okay. basically just will raise your hands above your head and sort of turn around to make sure everything gets blown off, and then we'll be on the other side. If you feel uncomfortable or something, there's an emergency button there if you feel claustrophobic or something like that. Okay. Okay, thanks. <laughs> going into the air shower. It's going to be loud. This sterile environment is built to hold 36,000 mouse cages, nearly 1,000 per room. Much of the process is automated. We see giant robots, like you might find in an assembly line in an auto plant, that fill cages with clean straw so that each mouse house is exactly the same. And other robots that dump out the dirty straw and sanitize the cages. On the other side of this wall is what we call holding A, and that's where only a subset of TCP staff are allowed in there. That's where mice are kept very restricted. So this is all the mice that we're first making are on that side to make sure they don't get mixed up with anybody and nobody's not supposed to be using them, sees them, and all that sort of thing. So the 620 grin mouse will be over there. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That pull affection I felt for Amy's mouse, I feel it even more now, knowing that the Bryson mouse is so close, but we're not allowed to see him. 
The final step is to breed a suitable colony so Mike and Graham can start their experiments. Okay. And, and how old are they when you start to breed them? Um, the females reach sexual maturity about six weeks of age, and the males are about eight weeks. So we usually wait till they're seven or eight weeks to actually breed them. Okay. Mice are pregnant for about three weeks. So the hope is that after that, Mike and Graham will have the start of a colony of bryson mice they can breed for testing. We could have answers within months. But the results from another experiment are already in. Back at the family meetup in Pittsburgh, we signed up to get what's known as a functional analysis done for Bryson's variant. Researchers do the tests by injecting mutated genetic code into frogs' eggs and then applying different chemicals such as glutamate and magnesium. When things are working properly, NMDA receptors function like a system of rivers and dams that open and close to keep brain communication at optimal levels. But in kids with Grin variants, a chemical imbalance messes with the flow. If there's not enough sodium flowing through the rivers, that's probably a loss of function mutation, the whispering kind. But if the dam doesn't block the flow enough, too much flows through, and that's probably a gain of function, the yelling kind. Finding out which type Bryson has can help us get a better sense of what's going on in his brain and what types of medications might help. But Bryson's results are mixed. There's not enough sodium heading into the rivers, but at the same time, the dams are too small to properly block the flow. So the researchers, they're not sure if this is a gain or loss of function. But other scientists who look at the results think the lack of dams is the biggest factor which would make this a gain of function. So after consulting with Bryson's neurologist, we've started giving him magnesium supplements to bolster those dams. We've also put him on a prescription for memantine. That's a drug that's usually prescribed for Alzheimer's patients, but it's known to slow down the NMDA receptor. But the meds, it's hard to tell if they're working. I'm amazed at how much has come out of our decision to host the Grin One family meetup in Toronto. Not just the mice, but building relationships with these researchers as well. I chat regularly with Amy Ramsey, and one day she mentions that a researcher she knows in Atlanta is looking for Grin patients willing to provide blood samples. He's making iPS cells and mini brains. And Amy wants to know if we would consider traveling to Atlanta to be part of his study. Five weeks later, I'm on a plane with Laura, Bryson, and his big brother, Connor. I think I mentioned this before, but traveling with Bryson, it's not easy. In the past, we've been able to keep him safe on a plane by buckling him into a car seat. But now, Bryson's 12, and he's outgrown car seats approved by the FAA. So this two-and-a-half-hour flight to Atlanta, it's the first time Bryson will be on a plane in a regular seatbelt. He has one big seizure-like episode, and another time Laura 
turns back to see Bryson completely upside down, his back on the seat and his legs in the air. But mostly, he's pretty calm. So the biggest challenge is that he figures out how to undo his seatbelt. 36 times he unbuckles, and 36 times I buckle back up. I count not because I'm annoyed, but because I'm actually overjoyed at this development. Uh, currently about uh, 55 miles from the airport, should be underground in just about 20 minutes or so. Uh, weather's Atlantic, uh, scattered clouds, light winds out of the west, and Since we're hauling the kids to Atlanta so they can basically get needles, we try to have fun, too. We go to the Georgia Aquarium, an all-you-can-eat pie buffet, and visit the world of Coca-Cola, where the highlight is you get free samples of Coke products from around the world. Connor makes it his mission to sample every single one. I like raspberry. How many are that? 261. So you got one left? You're going to brush your teeth tonight, right? But the real reason we're here is to give blood samples. Hello. Hello. Keith? Yes, hi. Hi. Nice to see you. Laura? I'm Laura, yeah. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, nice to meet you guys. This is Bryson. Oh, Bryson. Hello, Bryson. I'm Tussing. Hi. This is Connor. Connor. Nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you. How are you? Good. Good, good. So, um, maybe we can go uh, upstairs. Okay. In order to compare Bryson's DNA... Researcher Zasing Wen also wants samples from me and Laura. And Connor volunteers to provide blood as well, in the name of science. Zasing has made us an appointment at Emory Brain Health Center. We start with paperwork, signing to confirm that we're giving informed consent to be part of the study. So basically the first page, it just goes over saying that this is indeed a study. Um, there's not much of this can be. Um, this study is mainly for dystonia, but we can look at other disorders as well. And then it's time to draw the blood. Laura, Connor, and I are easy. But Bryson, he doesn't want that needle anywhere near his veins. He's strapped into his wheelchair and Laura and I are both trying to hold him still while the technician inserts the needle. But Bryson's thin veins are hard to find at the best of times. The needle pops out and blood shoots onto the floor and the technician's pants. He's had enough. He tells us he has no experience drawing blood from kids like Bryson, and he's too nervous to try again. We scramble to find someone else who can take Bryson's blood. And after a bit of calling around, a pediatric neurologist at Emory arranges for us to get the blood taken at the Children's Hospital on campus. The nurse there is a pro. She's used to challenging cases, and she's successful at getting the blood we need. We head to Zassing's lab to learn about how he makes these organoids. So here is the bioreactor. We are growing organoids, and you can see. So you can see the organoid here. So how big are the organoids? So the uh, diameter is about four or five millimeter. Four or five millimeters? Yes. So half a centimeter? Yes. Wow, that's big. Each of us begins life as a single cell, a fertilized egg that contains DNA instructions to make an entire person. The cell splits, then splits again and again to form stem cells. These stem cells are like a blank canvas that have the capacity to become any cell in the human body. Some become bones, 
some become muscle, some become brain tissue or other organs. Until recently, scientists thought this process couldn't be reversed, that an evolved cell couldn't be turned back into a stem cell. But in 2006, the year Bryson was born, Japanese scientist Shinya Yamanaka figured out a way to turn almost any cell back into a blank canvas. So it's kind of like it, you could take almost any cell in the body and reverse engineer it into something almost like a stem cell. Yes, yes, that's called the iPS cells, induced propotent stem cell. But that's not all. Once they've got the iPS cells, scientists can grow a rough version of a synthetic embryo. And from that, they can cultivate organoids, clusters of cell tissue that can roughly approximate the function of human organs such as liver, kidneys, or even brains. So first, we will make the, uh, from the iPS cells, we will make the 3D structure called the embryo body. From there, Zasing's team will introduce different chemical compounds that will induce this synthetic embryo to grow into a cluster of cells from a specific part of the brain. Scientists are already using organoids to learn more about diseases of the lung and brain, and they're exploring whether organoids could be used as treatments for specific diseases. For example, Dutch researchers have tried transplanting kidney organoids into mice. The organoids aren't close enough to actual kidneys for this to work yet, but if and when I need another transplant, is it possible that one could be built in a lab from my own cells, one with my exact DNA so there's no risk of rejection? But perhaps the biggest near-term promise for organoids is personalized medicine. These mini-brains that Dr. Wen is building will contain Bryson's exact DNA, so he can test a bunch of different drugs to see if any have the desired effect on Bryson's NMDA receptor. He's tried a similar approach using organoids made with stem cells from people with fragile X, another genetic condition that leads to cognitive impairment. And he's found at least one drug with promise as a potential treatment. He hopes to provide us with some early results within months. Our visit to Atlanta also allows us to meet with Steve Trainellis. His team did the functional analysis using frog's eggs. Hi, Laura. Laura. Hi, nice to see you. Hi. This is Bryson. Hey there. How you doing, Bryson? Good to see you, buddy. Steve has been researching grin mutations for years. So I want to get a sense from him about whether I'm tilting at windmills in this search for a cure. Is there really a chance that we could find something that will help Bryson? Or is this all just a father's fantasy? He tells us that until he saw Amy Ramsey's work, he didn't actually think it would be possible for there to be a cure that would help an older child or adult. I think I was always very cautious and... Um, you know, it was not certain that in an adult or a developed child that if you simply replace the gene after the brain has undergone its full development that you'll be able to unwind what had been done. And so I think, I think that's, you know, that, that was my posture. And particularly something like GRIN1, which is, you know, present 
as early as it can be and involved in all of the connections. And I guess I was surprised that she could turn back uh, many of the phenotype. So how likely do you think a cure is going to be for at least some people with grin disorders? And how long until we might see that? Yeah, that's a that's a really challenging question, and you know I I, I hesitate to put any numbers on that. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of an exciting work going on with gene therapy and other conditions, and you know there's a lot of hope for uh, transferring that success to rare diseases, including the Grens. Steve tells us there are at least two routes to finding a cure. For grin disorders. One is using CRISPR or another form of gene therapy to correct the mutation. Another is using drugs, sometimes called small molecules, that can moderate the way the NMDA receptor is working. Drugs that could amplify a loss of function mutation or quiet a gain of function. There may be situations where a small molecule, either repurposed or discovered new, just for the grins, has has value and improved symptoms. And and you know maybe you couldn't call that a cure, but you might call that the beginning of an effective treatment. And there'll be other times where uh, perhaps a genetic therapy uh, will turn back a lot of the consequences of the variation. Ultimately, we'd like to fix the gene, um, you know, but once the brain, you know, develops, you know, as, as we were talking about with Amy's work, it's not always clear that that, that will simply turn everything back. Mm-hmm. The more I speak to these researchers, to Steve and Amy and Zasing and Graham and Mike, the more I believe that maybe this isn't just a father's fantasy, that if I keep pushing, maybe I really can help scientists to find a cure. And that's incredible. And something I've always wanted for Bryson. But in the back of my mind, I can't help wondering, is that what Bryson wants for Bryson? Because cure is a loaded word in disability circles. And there are countless examples of people who have disabilities or rare diseases and are able to communicate. And a cure? They say they don't want one. Next time on Unlocking Bryson's Brain. The idea of cure isn't straightforward. You know, again, I've, I've come to just love her the way she is, and I, I don't want to change her. Raising questions about cost. How much money should we spend? The resources are limited. Who gets access and who makes these decisions? We don't have a good track record of our ethics keeping up with our technology. Who's seen as valuable? And who is seen as disposable? Unlocking Bryson's Brain is hosted and written by me, Keith MacArthur. Our associate producer is Graham McDonald, who also does our mixing and sound design. Our digital producer is Emily Canal. Chris Oak is our story editor. Our video producer is Evan Agard. 
Original music in this episode by Graham McDonald. You can find bonus content for this podcast on Instagram. We're at CBC Podcasts. Do you have tips to help us unlock Bryson's brain or your own story about navigating the medical world with a rare or undiagnosed condition? We'd love to hear from you. Reach us at unlocking at cbc.ca. To learn more about grin disorders, visit curegrin.org. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.